Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever lost something because perhaps you didn't tie it down quite good enough before perhaps a storm came uh, or you're driving down the road? Come on, you raise your hand. Some guilty culprits, yeah. Maybe you uh, lost a dog or some animal because you didn't tie it down good enough, whatever. I, I, I think um, it's important that uh, you make sure that what you're uh, dealing with, you tie down. During Hurricane Sally, I'm going somewhere with all this. During Hurricane Sally, we had uh, a, a couple uh, people in our church, and, and uh, they had a, a river had developed between their house and the road, uh, lived out uh, east of town. And so I called him and said, how y'all doing? I said, well, fine, we just can't get out. The only way you can get to our house is through a john boat. And uh, we have no electricity, so um, we need some way to cook our food. And so um, I said, well, I can bring you our grill. Would that help? They said, absolutely. So, so I loaded up our grill on the back of our truck and, and tied it down with, thank God, the greatest invention in known to man, bungee cords. And uh, I don't know what we did without bungee cords. You know, what was life all about? So I strapped this thing down. And my wife kind of, she kind of shook a little bit. She goes, you sure this is, this is straight, you know, good enough, tight enough? I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 it's good. We're just going down the road. No. Well, she goes, are you sure? I said, I'm, I'm good. And uh, so uh, we got on the Beach Express. I get about 50 miles an hour, and I heard this loudest crash in the back. My truck rocked a little bit, and I looked back just in time to see pieces of metal flying on the Beach Express. My wife was not too far behind. She sees me pulled over the side, sees all this metal over the road, and uh, obviously the uh, grill had fallen over and had disintegrated on the Beach Express. And my wife um, is there, and she's like... um, not saying anything. She's just kind of looking this, with this like smile. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, it's got that look. You know, I'm like, don't say nothing. She goes, I'm not saying nothing. I said, but you are. She goes, I haven't said a word. I said, but your eyes. Your eyes are saying, I told you so. I was just a couple weeks ago, uh, we, we were moving some mattresses and uh, I had a trailer and I just threw these mattresses. I mean, literally, we weren't going to go very far. And I'm like, what? what? These are heavy. They were very heavy putting on the truck. I said, we don't even need to tie them down. She goes, I think you should. I said, no, we're good. Did you all know mattresses can fly? Mattresses fly. I found that out. I, I stopped up all the traffic on County Road 65, and now here I am with these mattresses. I'm trying to, and my wife's got the blinkers on. She's trying to keep all the traffic. It was crazy. Sometimes you need to make sure you tie things down. The reason I'm saying all this is because sometimes in life you just lose things that you thought you always had and would never lose. You thought they were secure. And over time, the winds of life have taken your joy or taking your hope, or taking your dreams, or taking your plans, or wiped away the relationship. And it's vitally important that we understand that our relationship with Christ must always be secure. You know, there's a favorite phrase phrase that we like to use in the body of Christ, and some of you may have already used it before. And when you're talking to somebody and telling them, hey, look, we're not, you know, our church or people, we're not into religion, man. We're just into a relationship. You may have said that. We're really into a relationship. And And to some degree, I would say that is true. But to some degree, it's even more than a relationship. It's actually a union with God that 
we're about. That's the goal. I want you to take your palms and hold them out like this for me, all right? Just do a little demonstration. What you have right here, if you would, is religion. Just, okay, I'm open to well, whatever. Oh, you know, there's a God. I'm going to have religion. Now, I want you to put your palms together like this. Now you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've invited him into your heart. And now you now have this opportunity to know the Father through Jesus. Now I want you to do this. Now you've taken it to a whole other level. It's not just a relationship. It's union. You have intimacy with your Father. Amen. Also like a good prayer spot too. But that's, that's, what, that's what God has called us to do. In fact, Jesus said it like this, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can't actually do nothing. You know, during that Hurricane Sally that we experienced here not too awful long ago, I was shocked by the amount of large old trees that have been around for centuries that have fallen down in our community. And these big, huge mammoth exposed roots now, um, no doubt, soon will be sending this tree that had known countless storms before would now experience death. And we'd be sawing them all up. Why? Because what they experienced was a storm that uprooted them from the soil, the intimacy, the relationship but even the union that they had with the soil. That's what the enemy longs to do. He wants to separate you from the union that you have with your father. And his puppet that he uses is the world. He uses and assaults you at every turn. A trauma here, a shock there, a loss over here, a chronic disappointment over there. A betrayal over here, a heartbreak over there. And before long, the enemy has pulled us, our whole roots up out of our relationship with God and flipped us on our side. And we wonder if we'll even recover from this experience that we've just had. I want to do like a little mini-series for just a week or two um, on, on the subject of fervency. We're calling it the fever of fervency, raising our spiritual temperature in our life, the fever of fervency. And and I want to ask a question, what keeps us from being fervent? And today, one of the things I want to hit on, what keeps you from being a fervent follower of Christ is sometimes the loss of hope that you experience. Turn to your neighbor, help me preach this morning, touch him on the shoulder and tell him, you need a little more hope. Come on, would you just tell him that for me? Come on, you need a little more hope. Can't have enough. Can't have enough. You need a little more hope. I, I want to take the background of our text this morning, give you a little background of, uh, of it before we read it. But the Israelites had come out of Egypt sovereignly, supernaturally through the Red Sea, now into the wilderness. God was bringing them on a journey into their promised land. The first thing that they experienced, other than just, you know, um, the, the heat of the wilderness and the terrain, was an attack by a group of people called the Amalekites. They were no longer out of their slavery, and they were attacked by these group of people, a, a small little nation at the time, 
Amalek that did not appreciate this new people that had come into their region. And so they made up their minds that they were not going to befriend them by any means. Even though they were just going to move on through, they decided they were going to wipe them out. And so the Amalekites ventured into a... Um, into some kind of a plan, if you would, to literally wipe out these new Jewish people. Now, you have to understand, before we go any further, God had called this group of people out because God had a desire, a dream, a purpose to restore the relationship that we had lost in the garden it's back to us. And he had to do that through getting his son to the earth through a group of people that believed in him. Israel, the Jewish people, were the only people in the world that believed in him. And so now they were under attack. And the enemy was using whatever he could, whatever people groups he could, to try to eliminate this, this answer to come to mankind. And so God says to Saul, who's now king at that time, he says, I want you to go to war against these Amalekites, and I want you to wipe them off the map. And you go, well, that seems like a pretty cruel thing. I mean, you know, I thought God is a God of love. Well, let me tell you, if, if you have a tumor in your body and it's about to wipe your life out, you would welcome a doctor to come in and take whatever tumors he needs, right? Whatever incision you need to make, whatever blood you need to lose, whatever it costs, by all means, remove this from my body. Well, God had to do the same thing from time to time. He had to remove these threats towards this group of people being able to come to life to bring his Messiah. These Amalekites were part of that people group that had to be taken out. So God says to Saul, listen, I need you to literally remove them from the earth. I mean, man, woman, child, uh, cow, dog, cat, sheep, anything. They, I, the, whole, the whole thing needs to be wiped out because my, my, my plan will be threatened. And so Saul goes about it. And in the process of going about it, God gives him great favor. Uh, but instead of doing what God says, he kept the sheep, uh, some of the good sheep, kept some of the great cattle, uh, some of the best. And, and uh, in his defense, he said, uh, some of my guys want to just you know, keep the best because we're going to sacrifice it to God and, and God would be pleased with us. And, and Saul himself even kept the king of Amalek, Agag, he kept him alive, uh, maybe using him as a, a bargaining chip down the road. And so Saul did not completely do what God had asked him to do through the prophet Samuel. And this is where we pick up the text. Samuel shows up. Uh, to Saul, to talk to him. Here's the, uh, the, 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 the cattle lowing. He hears the, the sound of animals. Hears, had heard that he, Saul had kept Agag. And so he says to him this, does the Lord delight in burnt, your burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey Saul is better than a sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, Saul, is like the sin of divination or witchcraft, and an arrogance like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected 
the word of the Lord. In other words, because you haven't gone all the way with what God has asked you to do, because you just went 95% of the way, because you didn't do the whole thing that God has asked you, then guess what? The Lord's rejected you as a king. And then goes on in chapter 15, verse 35, until the day that Samuel died, the prophet Samuel, he did not see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord had regretted he'd even made Saul king over Israel. What a sad scripture. That our God would even regret that he had shown favor to us. And then it goes on. Chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, the great prophet, how long will you mourn for this man Saul? The word mourn means to walk with your face down. How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, Samuel was like this tree that had been blown over. This big mammoth, mighty prophet had experienced incredible disappointments in his life. He had anointed two other peoples before this event. He had anointed his two sons to replace him and to be the next priest of the country. His sons were not anything like Samuel and actually had perverted the very position of a priest and had brought a black eye to the priesthood in Samuel's time. Samuel had anointed him. They had disappointed him and God. Samuel, the second time, had anointed Saul to be king, even though he told him that wasn't a good idea. They did it anyway. Samuel went with it. God showed him Saul to be the king, if that's what the people want. He anoints him, and now Saul has disappointed God, disappointed him, disappointed the nation. Now they've had two, he's had two huge disappointments of people that he's anointed. The only two times he's anointed anyone, and they both failed him miserably. And he's now left in despair. He is mourning the loss of Saul because this was, the, this was the direction that the country was taking. We have a leader. He's going to, you know, love on God. He's going to lead us in a good direction. And we're going to, you know, follow his leadership. And we have hope for our nation. And now this leader has gone astray. He's become proud. He's become insecure at the same time. He, he's done his own thing. And so God has to turn his back on this king. And so Samuel is like, I, I could seems like, feels like he's been hit by, 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 a, by, by a ton of bricks. He, he wakes up heaviness in his heart. What, what's happened to my nation? What's happened to the direction that we were going in? What's, what's, what's the deal? There's, this is nothing but despair and uh, depression ahead. There, it's a black cloud. Everything's gone wrong. God's rejected the 
very hope that we had of leadership in our country. How many can relate even in this hour that we live in? I don't know how many people I talk to and they start talking about politics and I'm all into that as well. I, I think we should be up to date and all that. But the more I hear them talk, it's like their head starts getting low and low and low and, and the more they talk about what's happening, the less hope they have and the less encouragement they have. And it's almost as if they've given up and, and they've given our nation to whatever and they, they, they just kind of like going through the motions. There's, there's like Samuel, if you would, just no hope for the future, cashing in my chips, if you would. I throw it in the towel. I'm just going to do my thing with Christ and the church and let you know everything else go to pot. You know, there's no hope anyway. Can I tell you that there's always hope? There's always hope in our God. I was, I was, I was uh, years back watching, a, I was a favorite baseball team. I love that grew up with baseball and had, favorite baseball team was in the playoffs. And if they win this series, they go to the World Series. It was, it was incredible. But they were down, down, hadn't scored anything. And they were down by a run. And they managed to get a guy on base. If you know anything about baseball, you follow with me. If not, just, just smile at me. But anyway, so it's, it's two outs, the bottom of the ninth inning, um, two strikes on the batter. And they were going to, you know, obviously they were going to lose. People are leaving the stadium, getting to their cars early. And they're just, they're done. And, and I'm laying there, my wife had already gone to sleep, she was asleep, and, and I'm laying there in bed, and my, my heart's like, oh man, another year, they don't make it to the World Series, oh, this is sad, and, uh, and they had this guy, he, he wasn't known for anything, up the bat, you know, he's swinging like a crazy man, and um, I'm like, uh, I almost turned it off, because I didn't want to see the pain of the other team celebrating their win, and all of a sudden, I heard a crack, and the ball came off the bat, over the fence, hits a home run, two runs come in, they win the ball game, and I jump up out of the bed. Whoa, 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 my wife, what's going on? What's I said, it's never over. It's never over. It's never over. It's never. She's like, you've lost your mind. I'm like, he hit a home run. We're back in the series. We're going, we possibly could go. It was great. It's an awesome experience. And, and she, she was like, oh, whatever, go back to sleep, go to bed. I'm telling you, it's never over until it's over. I don't care if it's the bottom of the ninth, two outs, two strikes on the batter, two strikes on the church, until God says it's over, it's over. Don't mourn. Quit crying over the fact that you've lost something here or lost something there. God's still got some great plans ahead. How long will you mourn? How long will you be without hope? Not just for our nation or not just for your family or not just about your life. How long will you be without hope? Here's the good news. As long as you have a horn, you have hope. There is always a horn to grab in your life. So I'm gonna give you three steps quickly. How to get your hope back. Turn to your neighbor, tell him this is going to be good. You need to listen. Come on. You need to listen to this. Come on. Three steps getting your hope back. Number one, as I mentioned, you got to find your horn. I'm not talking about a trumpet, clarinet, some saxophone stuck in the closet. I'm talking about the horn that the Bible is talking to us about. When it talks about horns, it's always speaking to us of an animal's horn that they would use. The great, great leaders, the prophets of the time, they would great, take these hollowed out horns, they would fill them with oil, 
and they would go and they would pour it over an individual and they would pray over this person and that horn represented power. The word horn, the whole symbolism of the horn of this animal represented power. I, I talk to guys that go deer hunting and, uh, hey man, I killed, I killed an eight point. I killed a 10 point. I killed a 12 point buck. I, I, man, I th- you should see this rack. They don't talk about the hoofs. They don't talk about the tail. You should see the tail of that thing. That thing was so, wow, I mean, you, you should see the hair on it. It was like three inches thick. It was like, no, they, they, they come home with the, with the rack. They hang it up on the wall. They take pictures of it, holding it, the rack, the horns, because it symbolizes that I overcame the 12-point buck. Come on, so you don't talk about you've seen them. Some of you've done them. You don't talk about. Some of you got like a little two-point, a little four-point. You, 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 don't, you don't even show nobody that picture, right? You, that's embarrassing. So something about the horn symbolizes I've overcome. It's powerful. In fact, in the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant, where God lived in the Bible was in in the Old Testament at that time, before Jesus, God dwelt in the earth in one location, it was called the Tabernacle of Moses. And it was, a, it was divided up into three parts, and outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And, and there in the holy of holies, it, it was the Ark of the Covenant. God dwelled there. It was, a, it was, uh, it was kind of uh, 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 overlaid with gold, a case of wood inside, inlaid. And then on each corner, it had horns coming off the, off the, off the corners. It would be the place where the priest would go one time a year to um, splash blood onto the mercy seat and ask God for the forgiveness of their sins, of the people. And there on the mercy seat, uh, there in that room, no lighting was there. And yet it was all lit up by the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. And God would show up and it was always there. And he would remove their sins. and, And those horns would be there on that Ark of the Covenant. And it was to symbolize that when you come to God in prayer, there is power in prayer. There is power when you commune with your God. It is not some empty thing that you do. There is power in prayer. And before you would go into the Ark of the Covenant, there was this curtain, and the last piece of furniture before the curtain was this another little smaller box called the Altar of Incense. And they would come and they would splash some anointing oil onto some charcoal type of fire, and it would create this incense, a perfume, an aroma into the room. And it was a symbol, it was speaking to us of a message today that when you come, uh, come into the presence of God in intercession, you first must come with worship and praise, lifting up the name of the Lord. It was, the altar of incense was a symbol of, of, of worship and praise. And on that altar, it too had four horns. It had a horn on each corner of the top of this altar, speaking to us of the power of praise and worship. The horns were very significant. 
It speaks to us of power. What, what God was saying to, to, to Samuel, he says, listen, if you, re, if you remove God's power from this situation, from this equation, then you are hopeless. But I want to remind you, Samuel, you got a horn over in your corner. You need to go find your power. You need to brush it off. You need to pull it out of the closet. You need to get into the praise, into the worship, into the prayer, into the intercession, and talk to your God because it is not over. There is still hope for you and this nation. The second thing, not only do you have to go get your horn, but you have to fill it with oil. He says, Samuel, go fill the horn with oil. Oil always speaks to us of the Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word anointing in the original Greek language which the New Testament was written in is the Greek word creo. And it's, it means smearing or the rubbing on of oil. The smearing or rubbing on of oil. Much like if you had a cramp or a, a muscle type of ache, you would go to a trainer and you say, man, I've got this, 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 you know, this severe groin injury or something to my muscle and they would rub oil onto their hands and they would begin to rub it deep. They would give you a deep massage into that muscle, trying to work that oil into that muscle that was cramped or in pain. And it's the same way with the anointing. What God does as he comes and he, and he says, hey, I'm here with my power and with my, my restoration and I've come to, let you come to rub it into the situation of your life. Which brings me to this thought. In Hebrews chapter six, it lays out before us the foundational stones or the, or the basic doctrines of our belief system. If you want, want to know what, do we, what am I supposed to believe, go to Hebrews chapter six, first couple of verses. It tells you all the things. One of the doctrines of our faith, everyone's, is the doctrine of the laying on of hands. We don't talk about it much and we don't even see it much. But I want to bring it back up because I believe it's very important. I believe James chapter 5 is true when it says, if any be sick among you, let him call for the elders, let him lay hands, let him anoint with oil, that the prayer of faith may bring healing and recovery. I believe there's power on the laying on of hands and anointing people with oil. I was with a, a, a lady a couple days ago over at their house, and she said, man, I, I really could need, need some prayer. I have some physical challenges. I said, hold on. I went out to my truck. I pulled out my little bottle of anointing oil. I came back, and I said, is it okay if I anoint you? Said, Absolutely. I anointed her, put a little touch on her forehead, and I said, you know, now this oil obviously has no power. It's just a little olive oil. That's all it is, but it's a symbol. It's a, it's a contact, if, if you would. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a point of belief that God's Holy Spirit comes in the form of prayer, laying on of hands, we're going to believe God's recovery for you. 
I, I got prayed. We had a wonderful time of prayer. Left 20 minutes later, I'm visiting with another individual. He's talking about this issue going on in his stomach. It hasn't been able to digest food very well. I said, would you mind if I anoint you with oil? He kind of looked at me strange. I said, I'll explain in a minute. I went and got my anointed oil. I said, this is symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says if we lay hands on one another, anoint them with oil, that God's presence and power will come and manifest itself. Do you mind if I pray? He goes, throw it on me, man. Come on, right? Just whatever. I believe that there's, there's an impartation that comes from the laying on of hands, and you were designed by God to be anointed. And God will give you more sometimes, even that you don't... How many have ever heard somebody say, Maybe even probably, some of you may, I hope I don't ruin this for you, but some of you may even have a little um, plaque on your wall that says, God will not give me more than I can handle. Now, yeah, <laughs> nice little plaque. It's a nice little statement. In fact, I've said it myself before. But the reality is, that is not true. God, by his very nature and purpose, will many times give you more than you can handle. And the reason he gives you more than you can handle is to prove to you and show to you that you can't handle it. Come on. I mean, if you can handle it, why would you even need God? So you need to go change your little plaque and say, God will give you more than you can handle. Because God does that. God allows you to experience overwhelming odds and circumstances beyond your control. He'll allow you to come to hard places, difficult places, discouraging seasons, a crisis at school, a partnership that just blew up, a lingering health issue going on in your life. Why? To teach you how to live in the supernatural presence of your God. Oh, come on, church. You, you got to help me out. God designed you to live in the supernatural, yeah. not the natural. We want to live in the natural. God goes, no, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And it requires him and his presence and his oil of his presence to be involved, his spirit, along with us all the time. Paul said it like this. Because, you know, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, you know what? When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ, him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear, with trembling. And here's this. And my message and my preaching wasn't filled with wise and persuasive words, which is where much of the church is today. But he says, I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that the faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. See, you, you got to fill your horn, your horn, you're a horn with oil. You can't keep it empty. And the enemy desires desperately to empty your horn, to keep it dry, to keep it totally isolated, empty, 
And by keeping you empty, he depletes you of your anointing. How does he do it? He lies. We talked about it a few weeks ago. He lies. He's a father of lies. He lies to you and says, oh yeah, see that mistake? Your old man's not dead. You thought he was dead. He's not dead. That old nature, he's not dead. He tells you things like you're truly not saved. If you were truly saved, you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have said that. He says things like you're not worthy. You'll never be worthy. How about this one? Your best days are behind you. Oh, it's getting quiet, but it's right. He says things like this. You missed your opportunity. You don't fit in. Look, look at all your losses. You've tried. You've failed how many times? You are nothing but a big, fat, and you cannot exist and do what God's called you. You have nothing to give. You, one day maybe you'll be like so-and-so, that Sister Susie, whatever, Sister Jelly Bean, she knows the scripture back and forth. Maybe you'll be like her. But until then, just do your best because, buddy, God will never use you. You'll never be at that capacity, and it's a big, fat lie. Do you know elephants? Elephants are these huge mammoth you know, in, in, entities that look at, literally walk uh, and, and walk over trees. Like you cause trees just to fall, just mammoth that could squash a, a man with just, you know, just one step and the man's gone. How do you take a wild elephant and tame it? Because they do. They've been doing this for over 400 years, or actually, excuse me, back to... Um, uh, 4,000 years ago, they started taming elephants. And here's what they would do. They take the elephant out of its environment and they put it in a, in a dark, closed-in place. And no lights. Now, elephants are a very social animal. And isolation for these pachyderms drives them nuts. They love to interact with other uh, elephants and their peers. It's, it's just who they are. They, 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 they're always in packs. And so they isolate this elephant in darkness until its little brain is like just going crazy. And then after the third day of being in total isolation. They put shackles on the feet of this elephant and they bring him out at nighttime in front of a fire. And then people start taking uh, long sticks and torches and lit on fire and they start dancing around this elephant and telling and just screaming at the elephant and telling this elephant what a bad elephant it was and what a stupid elephant it was, what a crazy elephant it was. They dance and they scream and they yell at this elephant all night long. This elephant just stands there with all of its power, with all of its strength and it stands there crazed. It stands there isolated and it stands there listening listening to all this stuff, not knowing what in the world's happening, and it's just losing its mind. And by the time sunrise comes, that big, huge, pachyderm, mighty elephant has now become docile. His will has been broken, and that little man takes the shackles off and leads him by a little stick anywhere he wants to go because the big, fat elephant has lost its strength, lost its power because he believed what he was told in the isolation. If that doesn't take, paint a picture of us, I don't know what does. 
The enemy comes and yells and screams at you, tells you all sorts of crazy things, threatens you with fear and fire, terrorizes you, can't sleep at night, sleep in the daytime, up at night, isolating yourself, thinking it's over, thinking you're a nobody, and before long, you're just led around, just like you're being told. God wants to restore your hope. Go get your horn, fill it with oil. And number three, go anoint your future. Because there's a David out in a sheep field somewhere. There is an answer to every situation coming against you, your family, this nation. God has provision. Go find that thing that God wants to do. Go find that next move of God. Go find that next tool God's about to use. Go find that person who needs what you have. Go find somebody and pour into their life and watch God build something great through you. See, here's what God, God wants to restore to you divine anticipation. I run into so many people and they're shell, they're just a shell. They just walk around and there's, I, I think there's somebody inside there, but I can't really tell when I look at their glassy eyes. They're breathing, they're living, they're eating, but I, they're not there. They've lost their divine anticipation. But I'm thankful for stories in the New Testament like Simeon who would spend every day at the temple looking for the Messiah to come. He was old in years, but yet still he woke up every day knowing that there was still a Messiah to come. And he woke up looking, to, to, running to the temple, waiting, to, could this be the day today? Will it be the day that I hold the, the Messiah, the future? Will it be tomorrow? Will it be next week? I don't know, but I know God's promised us through Isaiah, he's gonna send us a Messiah. I'm gonna wait, I'm anticipating, it's gonna happen. And that one day when Joseph and Mary came and dedicated the little baby Jesus unto the Lord, there Simeon laid his hands on that which he'd been anticipating for so many years and finally, his heart was complete, his horn was filled, and suddenly he realized he has something to give, a blessing to this Messiah to come. Anna was a peer, a contemporary of Simeon, still in the same temple. She had been married at a young age, and, and her husband had died. She never got remarried, but she had one longing. She would fast and pray and literally lived in the temple of the Lord, waiting for the Messiah to come. And she too would finally see the Messiah. God was like, I got to honor these people filled with so much hope. I must make sure I honor Simeon and Anna for their divine anticipation. God wants to restore the oil to your horn. That's our band to come. I want to share a story as they come. And then we're going to do something this morning, a little different. But some of you have heard probably the, about Spanish bullfights and the matador that is dressed up in the fine sequined outfit with the sheer stockings and the funny looking hat and the 
red blanket that he would swirl around him. You're familiar with the matadors and how he must be so brave. He must be such a brave man to go out into that arena and face such a powerful animal. Hmm. Oh, to be like the matador, the courage that he must have. He seems like he's fearless to be that man. But there's something that you and many people don't know that only a few, including the matador, know. The matador knows on equal playing field, he has nothing against this bull. These bulls have been trained since, or raised or bred since the 1700s. There's five different breeds that make up this particular breed. It's called the royal herd. And they're bred to such a way that they have these large mammoth hooves and they have these huge necks and these gigantic horns and these very muscular bodies with loss of stamina. And they're bred specifically for the arenas to face the matador. And finally, when they put on the calendar a particular uh, bullfight with the matador, they find, they pick out the right bull. And they take this bull and they bring him to the arena and they put him in an isolated, just like the elephant, cage. And it's dark. For three days or four, it's dark. Can't see anything. And they go and they take paper and they wet this paper and they stuff it in his ears, the bull's ears. Aggravates him. He's aggravated. He's ticked off. Ah, ah, ah. Can't get it out of his ears. It's always there, making crunchy noises every time he moves his head. And as if that's not enough, they take Vaseline and they put it over his eyes. So everything becomes cloudy and not clear. Sounds like the enemy, doesn't it? Fills your ears with all sorts of things. Drive you crazy. Thoughts, ideas. Clouds your vision. You, you don't see the future clearly like you used to. You, you don't have hope anymore. You just, everything seems like it's out of whack. Everything's like not, not, not bringing clarity to you. You just, in and, and your isolation, everything's dark. You're tormented. And finally, after three or four days of this, the match comes, the matador is there. But before the matador walks out, they bring this aggravated, tormented bull out of its darkness down through the tunnel of death. And for the first time in days, light hits his now glazed eyes and he goes into this arena and he's like 
crazy. He's like mad. He's, he's, he's losing it. He, he, he's, his equilibrium's off. His, his sight is clouded and he's running around and he's, he's angry at everything and everyone. And, and as if that's not enough, they, they send some guys on some horses and, and they stab him in the neck with a spear until blood starts coming down his neck. When They call, they call it the, the weakening of the horns. And, and, and they stab him in the neck until his it, it, it starts losing his blood in his neck and his big stalwart large head full of these big horns starts to lower itself a little bit and he's feeling a little weak and, and as if that's not enough uh, these other guys come along with on the horses and they take these little short like darts uh, with them um, sharp barbs at the bottom with a heaviness at the top and they stick it into 16 of them into his neck uh, as he's passing by them until every time the, the, the bull moves any movement he makes uh, it cuts a muscle, it cuts some kind of a tendon and he's angry he's hurt and, and he can't hold his head up high like he used to he, he used to have horns uh, that were powerful that he could use to destroy whatever came around him and now his head's bent down, now it's hard to lift up his head. Now he's lost his equilibrium and he can't see things the way he used to see things. And, and at this point, the enemy, the devil, the matador comes out and everyone hails how great this Lucifer, this shining light is. And he comes out in all of his glory. And here you are, this strong, powerful bull with these huge, powerful horns and you could take out anything at any point, but you believe so many lies over the years. You've been cut uh, and bruised so many times over the years uh, that gradually you've been bled to death. Uh, gradually you can't see right. You can't think right. You've heard so many things that uh, aggravated the steward. You don't even act the same. You're not even the same person. You don't even know who you are anymore. And those once strong, powerful horns, anointed horns you used to have, your head gets lower and lower until you see some kind of a vague, a vague form and you're like, I'll go try to kid him. And, and you go and, and, and you have nothing to give. And he just takes his little red towel and he throws it around and just makes a fool, a mockery of you. You, the one born with powerful horns filled with the anointing of an almighty God, the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Godhead, filled, rushing within your bones. You, if you've heard so many things, can't see right, can't think right, and you just live life trying to exist, hopeless, despair. And the Lord says, Go get your horn. Fill it with oil. Go find your future and anoint it. Some of you here, your head is dropped. You spend more time looking at the earth than you do the heavens. You have no idea what God wants to do in the earth because you have no idea what he's doing in the heavens used to be filled with joy and hope. used to talk with excitement in your voice. 
used to be anticipation. You couldn't stop you from talking about what God was doing in the earth. And now your head is dropped. You can barely move, you stagger. And you stagger. And you stagger. Until when the matador realizes you only have a few steps left, he takes out two swords. He stabs the bull into the heart. He drops and the crowd goes crazy. The matador. The devil. Lucifer. In this case, how great you are. No. Not how great he is. But how hurt you've become. And how empty your horn has become. I'm going to have our prayer team come stand. I've asked him to come this morning with little vials of oil. And I've asked him to come prepared and ready to pray for you. You know, you, you, you know why we don't ask for prayer? Can I just, can we talk? We don't ask for prayer because we, we want everybody to think we got our act together. If you have your act together, please come up here and stand. I need to sit down and hear from you. We are all broken. We all, we all have needs of our horn being filled greater. Prayer teams, come please. We all are in need, but our pride, our insecurities, our whatever, who gives a flip what someone thinks about you? All I want to know is what he thinks, and I want him to fill my horn with oil. That's all I want. Fill me with oil. Don't give me just a little dash. I'll read the scripture before we close. Worship team, come on out and be ready. Psalms chapter 92. You've anointed me with the finest oil. King James says the fresh oil. You've anointed me with fresh oil. And the godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. For they are transplanted to the Lord's house. And they flourish in the courts of our God. Get this. Even in old age, they will still produce fruit. Woo! They will remain vital and they will remain green. 